0: Before we turn our attention to Colossians chapter uh, 3 where we'll be focusing on the first four verses this morning, I want to simply note for those of you who've entered uh, in uh, following the beginning of our service this morning that we are embarking on a new series for the next three weeks together, a series that you can uh, see in the picture on the very front of your bulletin. Uh, A series that focuses upon the importance of passing down the faith from generation to generation. That passing down of faith from generation to generation is certainly a challenge for those who are parents, who are raising children. But it's a challenge and a call for all of us, teachers co-workers, employers, employees, counselors, and the like, anyone who is touching anyone else's life, anyone who has any responsibility from which to share the story of the gospel, has the responsibility to do so in a manner that is seeking to instill the reality and the life of the faith in the heart of the individual in whom we are entrusted to care for and to love now that is a work of the Holy Spirit only the Holy Spirit can change a heart only the work of God can pass down the faith from one generation to another but it is also true that God has chosen to do the work that only he can do in and through you as his vessel he has chosen you To be the means by which the next generation will come to know Christ. To embrace Christ. And to walk in the truths of Christ. What does it mean then when we say something like passing down the faith? What do we mean in passing down the faith? Are we passing down truths and doctrines? Well, of course, that's included. Are we passing down morals behaviors, actions, and practices. Well, of course, that's included. But those things alone uh, can't be considered the reality of the passing down of the faith, though they're part and parcel to it. The faith is a living reality. It is the presence of God himself dwelling within the hearts and the lives of his people. That's not merely doctrine. And it's not merely a practice or a moral behavior. And what that means is that God is not simply after us being able to check our doctrinal boxes correctly. And he's not just after conformity To moral behavior. But he is after a transformed life. That from its very center pulsates. With the power of the gospel animated by the Holy Spirit. We want to be the kind of people. We want to be a church. That is committed to living the glory of that living gospel. In front of one another. And before a watching world to the degree that God might be pleased through his spirit to impart the warm-baked bread of the Holy Spirit in our souls in Christ into the mouths of those who are starving for the reality of the gospel. That's what we want to see happen. And so as we enter into this series from generation to generation, we are committing our hearts and lives to the fact that they're not about us but they're about Christ and the mission in which he has called us and we've come here today to embrace that to walk in it and to experience its life with that upon our hearts let's turn our attention to Colossians chapter 3 and let's look together at these first four verses which I believe distills for you and for me what is this very life of faith That we were just talking about. If then you have been raised with Christ. Paul writes. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ Who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we hear these incredible truths from your holy word, being spoken to us. And as we enter into this sacred moment, submitting our minds to your instruction, we acknowledge before you our neediness of the illumination and the power of your Holy Spirit to make plain to our hearts both the truth and its meaningfulness for the transformation of our lives and for the glory of Christ in our generation. We ask that you would indeed give your presence to us. For to have you is to have all that we need. Come now in this request and answer it by God's grace. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you will know the name Ralph Ellison. He's a well-known American scholar and novelist. He wrote the 1953 National Book Award book entitled The Invisible Man. He was asked in an interview that if the search for identity, we might even say life, is an, a primarily American theme when it comes to literature. Ellison, with something of a half smile, said, It's not just an American theme in literature, it is the American theme in literature. I was looking yesterday at my bookshelf on American literature looking over titles like The Moviegoer by Walker Percy, Snows on Kilimanjaro by Ernest Hemingway, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald and reflected upon Ralph Ellison's phrase that it is the theme, the search for identity is the theme. ...in American literature, and I had to draw the conclusion that even in those few titles... ...and the many more that I glanced at on my shelf were books about finding, searching, losing one's identity. Uh, Even Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, which uh, many of us in this room have likely uh, read... ...either forced to in high school or college, or later in our life picked up for fun is the kind of book that talks about a boy finding himself, coming to age, realizing who he is. He he does so by pushing against society, a society that tries to civilize him. He rises above the antiquated social norms. He forges his own way in life through stealing chickens and cigars and other such things. He repudiates society and his parentage in order to forge his own way, to become his own man. Uh, Now that theme is in a sense all over uh, both the pages of the novels that we read and the screens that we watch. In fact, Huck is just an older version of Princess Elsa in that block office blockbuster, frozen. Doesn't she fear that, that she will be discovered for who she really is? Doesn't she believe she's got to break out of the mold and to experience life the way that her heart desires it? As she sings, it's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and to break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free let it go just let it go princess moana is similar a little more tortured in some ways her identity decision about facing either to stay on the island and to fulfill her duties or to explore the open seas which her heart's desire i know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island everything is by design i know everybody on this island has a role And maybe I can just roll with mine. I can lead with pride. I can make a strong. I'll be satisfied. Just play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? You see, in all of these stories and the many more that could be cited this morning, these characters feel that deep and irreconcilable tension between being the person that the world thinks they should be To conform to the social and cultural expectations. Or to live chasing their individual dreams. Dancing to the voice of a song that sings inside of them. What if I told you you didn't have to choose between these two? (laughs) What if choosing your own identity and making your destiny is, is not even a decision that you should be faced with? And to have to be forced to choose cultural expectations or societal norms against the dream of your heart is actually a false dilemma. Don't choose either. Neither will give you what you think it will. What if I told you there's another way? Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 tells us there is another way. That we can't be the self-made man or woman that the world tells us we must be either through conforming to the standards which are there or by rebelling and bucking the system and becoming our own person. You can't be self-made because your self has already been made. And you've got to get to know the one who made it. When we talk about passing down the faith In this particular passage, we're talking not merely about doctrines or practices. No, we're talking about an identity. We're talking about a life. As we look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, I want to just simply see these three things with you. And I want you to ponder both your own life and those in whom you're responsible to teach the reality of Christ to To show it forth in the example of your life. And to live the love of Jesus in front of them. I want you to see in this passage it gives you your identity. I want you to see secondly that it gives you your destiny. And I want you to see thirdly that it forges in you a calling. Identity. A destiny. And a calling. If you're in Christ today... That is, if you are truly a Christian, I want to tell you something that's more true about you than anything else that you think is true about you. I want to tell you the biggest and most transformative truths about who you are, and and it's not what you're thinking. It's not the way you answer the question when someone asks you, Where are you from? What's your personality like? It's questions much more fundamental and more important. Here's what I know about you if you're in Christ. That you have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. And you will one day appear in glory with Christ. The rest of it, you can give or take. But those three things are non-negotiable. This is your spiritual biography. When someone asks for your story, is it it your tendency to say, my story is one that I was once alive to the world, but now I'm dead to it because I've died in Christ. I once tried to live my life on the things of this world, but now I've been raised with Christ and I live on an entirely different reality, the reality of the spirit and the power of the gospel. And I'm going to a place that you wouldn't imagine. It's not on the east side of town, or on the other side of the tracks, or in the gated neighborhood. It's among streets of gold and the glory of Jesus in a mansion that he has gone to prepare for me. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. These are the realities that form my existence. These are the lens through which I interpret everything that takes place in my life. There is nothing more true about you than this. And so we need to know what this means. (laughs) What is he saying if he says this is the reality of your life? Well, we need to look at these phrases. What does it really mean to die with Christ? If you were with us last week, you know we concluded our series in the letter of Galatians and we looked at that final section in Galatians chapter 6 and maybe there's no better way To describe what it means to die with Christ than what Paul says there in verse 14. He says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does he mean by that phrase? I want you to think of it this way. And I want you to capture it in your heart and your mind this way. It means to say that the world no longer at any level defines me. No longer. No longer. At any level, does the world define me? Let me get specific. Paul is saying, You are not your family of origin. You are not your GPA. You are not your job. You're not your socioeconomic standing. You're not your race. You're not your gender. You're not your sexuality. You're not your physical appearance. You're not your marriage or your lack thereof. You're not your kids. Or your lack thereof. You're not your divorce. You're not your struggle with the addiction. You're not your personality. You're not your gifts. You're not your talents. You are not the abuse you've experienced in your past. You're not your achievements that you've accomplished. You're not the good things that you've done. You're not the sins that you've committed. You've not the expectations you've met. You've not the expectations you've failed to meet. You are not defined by the world. These are the identity markers for how we feel good about ourselves. For how we experience self-worth. But such worldly standards of measurement no longer have any hold on the personhood of the Christian. We have died to those things. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. They simply do not measure up to the measurement that I have now been given in Jesus. They're not my life. They're not my identity. And I'm not going to treat them like they are. Now that raises a question. Then by what measure do I measure my life and identity? Well, he says it here. You've died with Christ, but what's happened You didn't stay there. You were raised with Christ. You were raised with Christ. Now what does it mean to be raised with Christ? Well, I want to just reflect on that in just two words. To be raised with Christ means these two things. It means victory and it means vindication. It means victory and it means vindication. I want you to think with me first about victory. In the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ was raised victorious... Over sin and death. He was raised victorious over sin and death. That can't be said about any other person that's lived on the face of the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ alone, as he was raised from the dead, was victorious over sin and death. And you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying you were raised in that moment with Christ. And you received the reality of Christ's victory over sin and death by faith the very moment that you trusted in Him. What it means is the measure of life and the standard of life that you now look to is the standard of the life that Christ has achieved and won for you in His victory over sin and death. But He's also been vindicated. In the resurrection and later the ascension, the Father received and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ back into power and glory as even this morning he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And in the same way that Jesus has received the acclaim and the glory and the presence of Christ, you have received from the Father that very same vindication. Meaning you live in the very present, before the face of God, in union with Christ. Knowing that judgment day has already taken place for you. It's already taken place for you. All of your sins have been paid for. Even the ones you haven't even committed yet. That you're going to commit tomorrow. Have been paid for in the Lord Jesus Christ. Utter vindication. Now... If this is the measure in the reality of your life and identity how is it that you live you live with utter freedom utter freedom you have total victory The greatest thing that plagues you in life, that makes you miserable, destroys your relationships and completely sabotages your joy. Your sin will be and has been dealt the death blow by the Lord Jesus Christ and will be utterly eradicated. The you that is you today will not be the you always. There will be a fullness and a completion of who it is that you will be made to be in Christ because you have been raised with him. That reality is breaking into your heart now. That change in the reality of that perception is coming now. That's a victorious place on which to stand. You also don't have to fret about the future when you stand before the judgment seat of God. Yes, he knows all that you've done and all the things you've forgotten that you've done. He knows those as well. But he is separated your sin as far as the east is from the west by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as He looks upon you, He sees and beholds the righteousness of Christ that will be charged to you and is charged to you even in this moment. This is the reality of the life of faith that we as believers in Christ have. That, of course, is doctrinal, it is true. That, of course, will beget a life of morality, of walking in accordance to the reality of this death in Christ, this victory and vindication. But it's not merely those things. We don't want a behaviorally well-modified people to move into the next generation. We don't want people who have simply intellectualized their faith to a but it has never really touched and transformed their heart. We want the living, pulsating reality of the faith to dwell within us. And we want to beget, by God's grace, the reality of its transformative power into the generation that is to come. For that to happen, by God's grace, it has to happen to you first. It has to happen to you first. It's got to be the way in which you walk, living in union with Christ, reflecting upon all of life In light of these realities, it's why we sing on Easter morn that wonderful Charles Wesley hymn, Made Like Him, Like Him We Rise, Ours the Cross, the Grave, the Skies. Hallelujah. The Apostle Paul is driving home the reality that the ways that we often mark ourselves or identify ourselves are on earthly terms. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I no longer regard you, speaking of the church at Corinth, according to the flesh. You know what he means by that? He means all kinds of things, but he says, I don't look at you, and I don't see primarily how you're so messed up, though that is true. I don't look at you in terms of how much money you make. I don't look at you at what kind of pedigree you come from. I don't look at you as to whether I like you or not. I look at you and I regard you with regards to Christ, who I see is someone made in the image of God, who I see is someone who Jesus died and bled for, who I, what I see is someone struggling to grow in Christ but is headed in the same direction as I, who I see is someone who when they appear in glory will be so beautiful, will be so beautiful, as C.S. Lewis puts it, that I would be tempted to worship them if I saw them in the future glory. That they will be. That's how I regard you. Because that's who you are. That's who you are. That is the reality of who we are in Christ. That's the victory and the vindication. That we presently sit in. That is breaking into the reality of our hearts. Now if I consider this This incredible inheritance and investment that's been given to me in the gospel. I want to be sure that it's secure. And that's why in this passage Paul assures us that what you've been given in Christ you're going to hold on to. He actually says it this way. He says your life has been hidden in Christ with God. He says your life has been hidden in Christ with God. You know what he means by that? He means that your life is so secure that it's hidden in Christ with God. It is absolutely secure. There's No, no one can breach your identity. No enemy can, can get through the walls of your identity and, and steal from you your identity. There is nothing, not even yourself. Like you can't even steal it. You can forget it all the time. You cannot use it. You cannot be renewed in the power of it. But you can't forfeit it. You can't do anything to destroy it. It is absolutely and utterly secure. Now, how can I be sure that this is the case? Well, look at, me, look at verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Now, Just a little, just, you know, if you'll bear with me, a a little logic lesson for just a moment. If Christ is at the right hand of the Father and he has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth, which he tells us he has in Matthew 28, and your life is in him, found in God in the heavenly places, it would take a greater power and authority to come in and snatch it away from Christ. But since there is no greater power and authority than Christ, there is absolutely no possibility that this can be sabotaged. That's what he's saying. He says this is the reality of which you are living in and you're either living in it or you're losing, as it were, the benefits from it. Uh, The benefits of living in the renewal of the mind. It's why he says seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. You see, What what have we been? What have we been doing over the last twenty minutes or so? What have we? What have we actually been reflecting on together? We've been doing exactly what the apostle Paul tells us to do in this passage. We've been seeking the things above. We've been setting our mind on the things above. We've been pondering, rehearsing, imagining the reality of Christ and who he is and what he's done until our hearts just simply want to explode with the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Now, when we do that, when we set our mind on the things above and our faith in Christ is built and strengthened as I pray yours is right now, Even in the midst of the preaching of God's word, do you know what you begin to experience? You know what you begin to receive? You begin to get, by faith, you begin to receive the benefits of being united to Christ. Right now, I would just simply imagine for those of you who are in Christ, you feel stronger in your ability to face the sin of your life. Why? Because Jesus has put it utterly to death and it has no claim on you anymore. You feel stronger to be able to walk out in righteousness. And begin to form patterns of discipline and holiness to pursue the way of Christ. Why? Because you've been raised with Christ. And your future glory will be his glory at the end of the ages. There's a confidence that begins to be born in the moment that you begin to set your mind on things above. You see, this is why when we begin to think about Christ and roll around in our minds, in our hearts, the realities of Jesus, or have someone help speak those realities into our hearts, or meet with one another to pray those realities into our heart, what begins to happen is our perspectives about life change what seemed so difficult, what seemed so hard, what seemed so impossible, why we were so anxious, why we were so worried, why life is so harried, why we've got so much to do, in color. all of a sudden begins to take on an entirely different quality and color. Because we begin to realize that the, the reality of our life doesn't Move forward on the basis of what it is that we have done or will do. But on what Christ has done and continues to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. It begins to make a change. It begins to conform us into the image of Jesus. It begins to awaken us to the reality of what life is really about. It begins to expose the fact that we do the opposite of setting our mind on things above. We really do set them on earthly things. Now, I think it's important in this moment to just pause. We're going to talk about this more next week. But some of you may be thinking, and if you were thinking this, I would would understand. Because I think it too. A lot of my life is pretty... Earthly. <laughs> like I kind of live here. Um, like I have a family and I have a house and I have a job and it's all kind of on earth. It tells me not to think about earthly things. That's it's not what the passage is meaning to say. The passage is saying, don't think about earthly things... In an earthly way, with an earthly focus, with an earthly perspective. But think about heaven to the degree that when you approach earthly things, you bring heaven to earth when you approach them. You bring heaven to earth when you approach them. Let me just give you a very practical yesterday sinful example from Nate's life so you can understand this. My wife calls me about 4 o'clock. She's gone to go pick up my clothes from the cleaners. Because i got to be looking good tomorrow <laughs> when I preach on Sunday morning. Why are you all laughing? <laughs> i got to be looking good when I preach on Sunday morning. Okay, so she's gone. They're open till 5 o'clock. We, I know this. The guy yesterday told me, come after 4, they'll, they'll be done. She gets there, and it's closed. Like almost like the entirety of what I would wear is there. I'm thinking, this is going to be really awkward tomorrow. And I don't have the clothes that I need to be able to preach in. So I'm ready to like, I tell her on the phone, i was like, I'm going to another cleaner's. I'm not going back there and getting my clothes. I'm, t- I'm tired of them. Consumed. I'm consumed with like, I don't want to have to iron something. I got to get up earlier tomorrow morning, right? I'm just like. Earthly things. Like totally, like completely overwhelmed with this mundane, this simple, this like doesn't matter earthly thing. Totally consumed with it in an earthly way. And then I'm sitting there going, wait, I'm preaching tomorrow about something like this. Um, what should I do in this moment? Oh, wait. I, listen, I'm robed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. My, my clothing for preaching tomorrow has no impact on the work of the gospel. <laughs> has no impact. God is about new creation. He's not about my threads. That's what, he, that's what he's about. And all of a sudden, I'm like, man, I'm too hard on those cleaners, guys. I mean, they've probably worked a hard week. And all of a sudden, what was seem so important and was going to be so difficult took in an opportunity to both die to self and live to Christ with the perspective of the reality change. And what happened is, picking up cleaner's clothes is where heaven and earth met. Do you just feel the radical change of that perspective? I died to the sin of being resentful, to being bitter, being upset with others and holding them to expectations that I feel like they should always meet for me. I've died to that kind of thing. I gotta live to the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a new creature in Him. I'm robed differently than starched white cotton shirts and silk ties. It's much better than that. It's the glorious robes of Jesus and His righteousness that are gonna make all of the difference. It's the countenance, it's not gonna be the clothes. It's going to be the heart. It's not going to be the externals. And the prayer becomes, Lord, I don't want us to simply know stuff about you. I want your presence to come in and change us and to be with us. Now, as you might imagine, it's not always that easy for me as it's not always that easy for you. Praise be to God, I was reflecting on this passage. And so I was able to make a fairly quick turn uh, in that moment. But how do we know if this identity is really beginning to get into us? What are the, what are the indicators that this identity is really beginning to get into us? I would just simply suggest, and in preparation for where the Lord's going to take us next week, two things, two things you know that your identity in Christ is really beginning to take hold, is really beginning to move into you if you're experiencing inside of you an internal resistance to it. But what do I mean by that? To live in union with the Lord Jesus Christ is actually a very frightening thing. Especially if you are situated in the flesh hearing me this morning rather than in the power And the perspective of the Spirit. Because what I'm actually suggesting to you. Is that your life. In no way shape and form. Is about you. At all. At any level. Which means the things that you selfishly want. Are just not a big deal at all. They're just not a big deal at all. And it's very likely. That over the course of your life, if you're going to live in union with Christ, you're going to have to die to many of those things. Because what happens when you begin to live in union with Christ and you begin to experience the reality and its benefits is you begin to see all of the ways that you're not living in union with Him. And you're acting like this is about you. And that is a frightening proposition. It may cause you to radically change your life and to invite all kinds of difficulty into your life. It is a frightening proposition, especially if the flesh has a stronghold on you. But secondly, you're experiencing on the inside this, an overwhelming and compelling attractiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it in the context of marriage because it's, the, it's, it's how God speaks about union with Christ in Ephesians 5. And it's how we often experience it in life. When you're preparing for marriage, which is to give your life away to another. It is a threatening and scary proposition. I mean, you don't really know what they're going to do with your life. That you don't. I mean, you you have a sense for what you think it's going to be, but let me just ask the married folks in here: Is it exactly like you thought it would be? Come on now. It's not. It's not. It's it's ten times harder than you expect to be. Now on the day of your wedding, you were like, "Oh yes, better or worse." I mean, like you were so excited, right? It was incredibly difficult, but inside of your life, you actually feel as you're headed towards marriage an internal resistance. There's an impulse to run away from the altar. If you don't have that impulse, you don't get what you're doing, you don't understand what's happening. There, there should be that impulse because it is a sober reality to give your life away to another. But don't you also say right beside that moment on the day of your wedding, there is a compelling attractiveness of the other that I say before God and all of these witnesses, so help me God, I can't do anything else but marry this other person. I just can't do it. Everything within me in part wants to run away, but the strongest part of me has to stay. And has to move forward. I would suggest to you. That in Ephesians chapter 5. When the apostle Paul says. We are the bride of Christ. And he is our groom. That the same fear and threat. And compelling attractiveness. Is right at the center of the living of the Christian life. It's right at the center of the living of the Christian life. And it's why as you talk to the saints over the years. Who have lived let's say. 40, 50, 60 years together. And they've been through the ups and downs and the heartaches. They've seen what has been overwhelming, the crosses that they've bore together. But they can remember how God brought them through. They can remember the moments that they laughed. They can remember the sweetness of what God has forged. And now they finish each other's sentences. And the union and the sweetness... Of what it is that they have experienced learning to rely upon Christ in one another was worth it all. Was worth it all. You're never going to regret saying yes to the call of Jesus Christ. You're never going to regret it. Undoubtedly, even in this in this room. That There are some of us who are so frightened by what we believe and even know as the Spirit has, has confirmed that He's calling you to something that you're resisting. And you're doing it out of comfort. You're doing it from the, from the flesh. And I'm here to tell you by, by the power and the strength of God's word whatever you think it's going to give you it's not going to give you. It's going to try to kill you. Say yes to the call of Christ and let the chips fall where they may no matter what it means. No matter what it means. And in the moment where that happens, you're going to begin to experience the life, the peace, and the reality that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this is why you don't have to choose comfortable cultural societal expectations You know, the three-bedroom, two-bath house, picket fence, 1.25 children, whatever it is now. You don't have to opt for that or the rebellious, individualistic, free-spirited, I did it my own way. Because right in the center of the gospel, you have absolute stability and radical adventure. When you are living by faith in Christ, nothing can move you. And all the world around you will shift and change as you follow him. The reason this life is so compelling and must be through hearts that have been shot through with the change of the gospel. Passed down to the next generation. And the effectiveness for that to happen is you being captured by this vision. And you and I together being committed To live it entirely for Christ. From generation to generation. By God's grace. Until we see him. As he is. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven I simply ask you now. Would you please. Knowing the hearts in this room. Do what it is that only you can do. Change us from the inside out. Make us like you. Until we see you.